and he ended up setting up Birdsorg, which is a it's a nonprofit, and it started small. And and by the way, the the motto of Birdsorg is humanity over bureaucracy. So it's kind of very interesting. It was like we need to put human beings and human interactions at the at the core, like of what we do and how we serve how we serve patients. And it started small, but as you say, it now has become the uh, leading provider of home health services in the Netherlands. They have 16,000 nurses and other caregivers. And the interesting thing about Birdsorg is that it is organized into more than 1,100 uh, self-managing teams. And these teams focus on a particular geographical area, typically, you know, uh, neighborhoods of about or areas of about 10,000 people. A very warm welcome back to the Leaders with Babies podcast. Thank you for listening. I am Farina Hefti. I'm the CEO and founder of our social enterprise, Leaders Plus. And I've set up this podcast and our award-winning Leaders Plus fellowship program because I want to give you access to inspiration and really practical support and hopefully some new ideas so you can continue to progress your career whilst enjoying your young children or your, your young child in a way that works for you. So if you believe that you shouldn't have to choose between really ambitious career dreams and at the same time enjoying your baby, your toddler or your primary school child, and if you want to join a group of like-minded mums and dads, then definitely have a look at the fellowship. Applications are open now on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash fellowship. Now, if you're selected as a fellow, you join a nine-month program together with a supportive group of parents across sectors, all from very different walks of lives, very different outlooks, but who are all passionate about developing their career dreams and that actually we should have parents in very senior roles and that it's absolutely okay to both want that and also really love your children and want to spend time with them and just practically it's a nine-month program you'll get a senior leader mentor who has experience of combining an ambitious career alongside young children and of course structured sessions with world-class experts facilitators to help you figure out how you can progress your career in the context of your child and just get some new ideas and I guess also protected time to think so that you can uh, figure out where you want to go and get the support from others around you in that group to get there and make that a reality. I guess one thing to say is that we're looking for people who are not just passionate about their own careers but also who want to be part of the change to create a world where every parent can thrive at work including their senior role and we're looking for people who are willing to support others, be that other fellows or parents outside of the fellowship, to help them achieve the same thing. So if any of that resonates, then definitely take a look at leadersplus.org.uk forward slash fellowship. And just one thing I want to say, it goes without saying that we welcome mums and dads. More than 10% of our last cohorts have been dads, well actually still are dads. And one thing just to keep in mind is if you're listening to this and thinking mm, I'm not sure if I'm you know the right, good enough or the right person research shows that women often and also ethnic minorities sometimes self-select out of opportunities so if right now you're hearing this and you're thinking mm, is this for me or not then it's really worth setting up a quick call which you can do via our website with a member of our team just to talk it through yeah we've put that up there because we know that some people do tend to self-select out of things if they're not sure if they're good enough and so on but I guess 
the main thing is if you're really passionate about your career and you want to help others and you're really passionate about your children and you don't want to live life like previous generations have then you're definitely a really strong candidate for the fellowship in terms of maternity leave we have about 20 to 30 percent of our cohort a year on maternity leave or share parental leave or adoption leave during the program because of that we've made it accessible to everyone with babies so it's absolutely fine if babies are on the meeting well the zo- the, at the moment zoom meetings and we really welcome that i guess that's the whole spirit of the program but we also have a number of colleagues with older children and we have a separate group for those whose children are in primary school of which we've piloted it earlier in 2020 and now is a core part of our program so yeah we have some subsidized places available including hardship fund for those who experience any financial difficulties and you can apply by 4th of march but if you are interested it's probably worth looking at it and starting the application earlier but all the details are on the website so that's enough from me for now and i'm really looking forward to sharing with you the conversation i've had today Today I'm talking to Michele Zanini. He is based in Boston, Massachusetts, and he's the managing director at the Management Lab. So he spends his days and maybe also sometimes his nights really thinking about what makes effective organizations. And he is super passionate about the idea of putting humans at the center of organizations rather than bureaucracy and he's not just someone who's passionate, he's actually someone who's researched it in depth with his collaborators. You might have seen his book, it's been featured in The Economist and in lots of publications. His very thought-provoking book, Humanocracy. So what do organizations really need to look like if they're fit for the future? And his work is just super thought-provoking, which is why I'm so thrilled that I managed to convince him to come onto this podcast. I hope you find our conversation interesting and enjoy. So a very warm welcome, Michele, to the podcast. I am delighted to have the chance to speak to the author of one of my most thought-provoking books I've read over the Christmas New Year year period. Why don't we start with you introducing yourself, your career background and your family life? All right. So thank you for having me on the, on the podcast, Verena. It's a delight to, to spend some time with you and your audience on what I think is a set of pretty important topics. My background, I'm originally from Italy, but I've lived in the U.S. since 1994. I came here for grad school and never left. And my professional career really started at the Ryan Corporation, which is a public policy think tank. I was focused on um, international security issues. And that's really where I started to get interested in the whole notion of how organizational design and work practices can really be a spur to organizational effectiveness and, and a really um, a big one. And it was actually in a really kind of a strange context. Uh, we were looking at terrorist uh, trends and uh, and ter- trends in terrorism and, and so on. And one of the most interesting trends was the migration away from bureaucratic kind of top-down hierarchical structures towards network-based form of organization. This was in the mid-1990s. Uh, and, you know, Al-Qaeda was just beginning to rise in prominence and so on. And, you know, the conclusion we, we, we reached there is that, you know, information technology and other important enablers were uh, creating, allowing terrorist groups to organize in very loosely uh, kind of formed ways, which were creating, uh, giving them much more flexibility and which were very difficult to counter 
if you had like um, the typical bureaucratic uh, kind of mindset and and model that most governments did when it came to fighting terrorist terrorist groups. So that you know that that I moved on from there. I ended up working, but you know uh, at McKinsey for about a decade, uh, the consulting firm. I um, you know didn't work on terrorist uh, group uh, analysis there, but uh, but this notion of understanding and analyzing and and really helping companies think through their management models, you know, as almost as an important, even more important enabler of organizational performance than the business model, you know, stuck with me. And it was in that context that I ended up uh, having the opportunity to work with Gary Hamill, whom I admired for a long time. He had struck up an interesting partnership with McKinsey. They needed someone uh, to help work with him. And I raised my hand and, and, you know, after a couple of years of being seconded to work with Gary, I ended up uh, leaving uh, McKinsey and just setting something up with Gary called the Management Lab, uh, where we help uh, organizations uh, get on a new S-curve of management innovation and create much more human-centric and less bureaucratic management organizational models. So, and, and that's really, you know, it was the work with Gary that led to a lot of interesting research and, and client work and, and interactions with people that are pioneering new work practices. And, and on that really led us to, to the book. So that's sort of my little journey uh, professionally. And as far as my um, personal family life, I am a proud father of three girls, uh, 15, uh, 13, and 10. And my wife works full-time. She's a uh, management consultant. She works at Bain, which is a competitor to McKinsey, which created some for some interesting dynamics um, when I was working there. And she's also working in the organization practice at Bain, which is, you know, so similar, similar passion in terms of, of topics of expertise and so on. And, you know, we try to uh, deal with uh, dual careers and, 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 and a growing family the best we can. Mm -hmm. Wow, I can imagine that must be quite in, uh, give, give food for lots of interesting dinner conversations. When I read your book, the reason why it first captured my interest was because so many of the parents who are ambitious uh, and who are listening to this podcast tell me that they want to progress their careers, but they're actually held back by very senior people and systems and processes that are stuck in the past and actually they need to change things and your most fundamental idea I think is that we need to put human beings at the center of organizations and we need to craft organizations around enabling human beings to be courageous to be entrepreneurial to be kind and so on but can you say a bit more about why this became a topic that you were interested in and what what does it look like in practice to to have a human-centered organization. Yeah. So it's a big question. I'll try. I'll try to keep it short, then we can kind of have a conversation about it, Verena. But uh, but the uh, the the premise of, of of the book is that our organizations are not as capable as the human beings inside them. They uh, are not as resilient. Uh, they often miss miss the future. Um, you know, they're very late to shifts in the industry trends or customer preferences and so on. I mean, in a way, COVID-19 has maybe showed that organizations can respond quickly to crises, but, you know, absent an existential crisis, they're often late. And even, even when they are existentially challenged, you know, their response is, is often too little too late. 
so that was that's one one kind of dis- disability or one lack of, of of capability that you know sorely needed you know because more and more uh as we go into 2021 and beyond you know we we find that the future is less and less an extrapolation of the past right so we need to be incredibly adaptive and resilient and most organizations are just not not that we also uh need organizations that are really creative in a way creativity and innovation is the fuel of resilience right and and if you look especially at large organizations they just are not that good at you know coming up with game changing innovations you know they might might be one trick ponies you know they may become successful because of an innovative product or a value proposition but you know they're often not very good at sort of serial innovation right and then the last thing is that organizations are not very engaging right and this is something that a lot of your listeners may be familiar with, you know, the, the if you look at the engagement data from Gallup, most people are just not that engaged at, at work. They're not giving, they're giving their best. You know, there's lots and lots of data that shows that part, the big reason for that is that they don't have the agency, right, to, to shape their work environment, to make a real difference, uh, to to apply all their gifts, right? And and given the fact that all these gifts, you know, of creativity, you know, the the kind of imagination, the passion, and so on, are things that you can't command, like you you, it's, it's something that you give to the organization. Most people just are not giving that because, like, what's the point? Why would they do that? So so we end up with organizations that are, as I said, collectively less capable than the people inside them, and and that's a problem for individuals working in there because they're just not as they're not flourishing as much as they could, right? Uh, they're not as happy. Uh, they may be content, you know, but the, but they're not necessarily uh, giving their best and 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 getting the the best from the organization. So it's a problem for the individuals working there. It's a problem for the institution, right? Because they're just not as uh, uh, as I said, as as capable, as resilient, as innovative, and 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 energetic as they ought to be to face a lot of the challenges and the opportunities of the twenty first century. And it's also a problem if you kind of take a step further back for society, right? Because we end up with less dynamism uh, and in in the in the economy, right? So less innovation, less productivity growth, um, but also you know more inequality, right? Because one of the things that you you get in the traditional kind of organizational uh, model, which we call bureaucracy, and we can kind of unpack that a little bit. It sounds like you know, the quaint term like horsepower, but it's, you know, kind of the operating system of most organizations today. There's a real difference between the kind of the managerial elite on the one hand and everybody else. It's a difference in authority, but it's also different in compensation and perks and so on. And and so if you kind of play that for many years, what ends up creating this economic disparity, which we see in, in the world today, where you have a lot of people at the top of the pyramid doing really well, and a lot of people are not doing, uh, you know, further down, not doing so well. So, so we we think it's you know a a, a a problem to be tackled for for those for those reasons for individuals, for the organizations themselves, and and then also for for society more more broadly. Yeah, and when we think about, I guess my big passion is to help people in senior lo- roles to be able to continue to progress their careers whilst having young children at the moment, the bureaucratic systems that most organizations have aren't set up for that. And you mentioned innovation, you mentioned having the agency to shape your own job. And all that is absolutely crucial if we want to have more leaders with babies, um, in essence, or even more women in, 
or more individuals with caring responsibilities in senior board level roles. So at the very beginning of your book, you mentioned Borzorg. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it properly, but uh, the, the reason why that, and you mentioned lots of other fascinating examples later on, but the reason why Borzorg sparked my interest is because I heard about it when I was thinking about postnatal care. And I've heard this, it may be a myth, it may be true or not, but basically, apparently, the Borzorg midwives or nurses in the postnatal period, they do whatever it takes. So if you as a mother are completely exhausted and just need someone to hold the baby and load the dishwasher, that is what they will do for half an hour. And um, at the time when I heard that, that just sparked my imagination. I just thought that was the most wonderful thing ever um, because that is sometimes what you need. And, you know, that's obviously with our, you know, that's not <laughs> in most health systems, that is not what someone would would do. And I just wondered obviously this organization is massive um and it's not you know it's it's a very structured organization i think if you can just share a bit more about how the how does it work practically to have a, an organization where humans are free to do what they think is right but at the same time maintain high medical standards in this instance for example well, you know, the interesting thing about Bertzorg is that you know, it was started by Joste Bloch, who was himself, he is still a nurse. And he was working in the Dutch kind of health system. And he was getting incredibly tired and worried about the creeping managerialism, right? That basically all these scorecards and rules and procedures and checklists that everybody had to kind of adhere to in order to kind of, you know, get, you know, what people at the top, you know, bureaucrats at the top felt was like a well-running system. But what he ended up seeing is that it was actually, you know, uh, constricting the initiative and, and the ingenuity of people working with patients and, and, and actually impacting healthcare in, in, in a negative way. So he said, you know, this is r ridiculous. And he ended up setting up Birdsorg, which is a, it's a nonprofit. And it started small. And, and by the way, the, the motto of Burtzog is humanity over bureaucracy. So it's kind of very interesting. It was like, we need to put human beings and human interactions at the, at the core, like what we do and how we serve, how we serve patients. And it started small, but as you say, it now has become the uh, leading provider of home health services in the Netherlands. They have 16,000 nurses and other caregivers. And the interesting thing about Burtzog is that it is organized into more than 1,100 uh, self-managing teams. And these teams focus on a particular geographical area, typically, you know, uh, neighborhoods of about, or areas of about 10,000 people. And in that catchment area, the teams are responsible for finding clients, for renting office space, for recruiting new team members, for managing budgets, for scheduling staff, for meeting targets and, and improving the quality and efficiency of the care they provide. So they're basically like little business, little startups, business units, right? They're responsible for, for their work entirely. And, you know, in, in the, um, instead of having a bunch of bureaucrats and administrators, you know, and, and functions, you know, doing, doing administrative work, what they do is they've syndicated the work of managing, which is still important. Like you, you can't, you know, you have to separate, in a way, form from function. You still need to allocate resources, measure performance, right? Uh, 
manage budgets. You, you still need to do that. But the question is, like, do you need full-time managers and administrators, or can you kind of syndicate that work to, to people who actually are doing that in addition to serving clients? And, and that's what, what Birdsorg has done. You know, every team member has a treasurer. They have a performance monitor. They have a planner, a developer, a, a, and a mentor. And these are part-time roles like, filled by team members who spend most of their time with, with patients. And, and, and uh, Birdsorg trains every associate in group decision-making, in active listening, in conflict resolution and peer-to-peer coaching so that they have the skills you know, to manage themselves, right, And, and in, in this way. And they do have some support uh, at the regional level and at the national level. They have about 36 coaches, uh, but they really are coaches. They're not, you know, these teams are not reporting to them. They're there to help the teams solve issues that they may not be able to solve on their own or, or help create cross-cutting task forces if there are issues that they need to solve at, at the level of births or overall. And, and they have about 50, per, 50 back uh, office staff, mainly in IT, because one of the things that connects all these teams together and makes sure that they're not just reinventing the wheel or doing, you know, having a lot of idiosync, you know, wasteful idiosyncrasy in the system is they have this, you know, um, a web uh, website where they share best practices. They have a bunch of information around performance of every team so they can benchmark each other and learn from each other that way. So that's it, though. So they have basically, you know, out of 16,000 people working in Birdsoak, they have about 100 people in, not in the field, you know, serving clients. And, and basically just two people who are managing, you know, Justin Block and, and another person. Like they, they don't, you know, they, they don't have like five layers of management and, you know, all these ladders, you know, the career progression ladders and all these centralized functions that – that are um, doing uh, a, a lot of the work. Uh, it's it's basically the teams that are uh, uh, driving that, and, and it's remarkable because, despite all of that, and in fact because of all of that, you know they are their overhead costs are much lower. Uh, staff turnover is about half as much as other providers. You know, patient satisfaction is thirty percent higher. And I think for the system as a whole, and KPMG and others have done this analysis. You know, the cost to the system of healthcare delivered this way is 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 much lower uh, than 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 in, in a traditional setting. And the irony is, of course, is that in the traditional setting, all those managerial kind of rules and strictures were set up to increase efficiency, but they have the opposite effect. So that's that's you know, a pretty remarkable case of, of a company as an organization, as you say, that is you know, fairly large, right? Uh, but can still manage incredibly efficiency, efficiently and with a lot of effectiveness, despite the fact that it has very few managers. Mm. And the really interesting thing is that you've pulled out examples from so many different sectors that do very have a very similar approach. So you mentioned in your book a big appliance company that has a similar approach. And I think it was a steel something um, yeah steel steel maker so obviously day-to-day activity quite different from from um, nursing and caregiving so does it work generally well these companies that we 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 profile about i don't know 10 to 15 companies in the book and and there are many more that kind of are of this ilk Uh, and in these companies we show that they have a significant advantage, you know, when, I mean, these are all market leaders, they have unbelievable customer, you know, uh, loyalty, 
They so they're incredibly customer centric. They they are more productive, more innovative, uh, and there are you know they have people who are much happier <laughs> and and fulfilled. Uh, they have incredibly low turnover. They pay people more. So um, and as you say, you know they are all in different sectors, right? And and the the, the thing that is common to them is this kind of um, mindset and this fundamental assumption that the organization, you know, it's in the traditional model, you know, and you talk about human resources, people are resources, you know, there are two kind of inputs, you know, to the production function of a firm, you know, uh, uh, labor and capital, right? And and so we got to kind of work these two, you know, kind of uh, inputs and, and, and get things, uh, you know, produced to the most efficient extent possible. Um, and, you know, while maybe from a, the sample of economics, that might make sense, what these organizations have said is, no, no, you know, the organization is, is the instrument. It's what people use to better their lives and the lives of whom they serve, who they serve. And, and, and so we need to create an organization, an environment where people can give their best and we can unleash their full potential. Uh, and, and so you start with that premise. And then the, the specific way in which these practices get or these you know this this model gets instantiated differs because of you know, geographic uh differences cultural differences industry differences and so on but there are some core similarities starting starting with this premise and and you might have noted Verena, that in in the book like you know we I mean, we do at some point lay out a set of like common attributes that a lot of these companies have but they're fairly high level because the most important thing that we think a reader should take away, and in general, if you're into this, into into these post bureaucratic companies, you you want to take away from them is not what they do in the specific, but rather how they think, right? So they are all driven by this, as I said, this kind of uh, premise of putting human beings, you know, at the center, and then you know being informed by a set of principles, you know. So we have a chapter for seven seven chapters, each with a different principle in mind. So ownership meritocracy, community, openness, markets, and so on. So the idea is that these are the principles of what we call humanocracies. Also, you know, like, and it's a, it's a term we use to differentiate, you know, the, the bureaucracies that, and the bureaucratic model that, that drives most companies and organizations today, which is focused on maximizing compliance, to one that is focused on maximizing contribution, right? So so these companies in different ways have embraced these principles and have applied them in a way that makes sense to them and and over time too. It's not like you can cut and paste uh, some other model or you you just have an idea of transforming the organization deeply and you can do that in six months. You know, these are complex systems. And it takes it takes a while. So the you know when you mentioned hire the appliance maker, they you know they have probably one of the most remarkable management models out there. But they've developed that over time. It's less about focusing on practices and more focus on focusing on principles and then thinking about like how might this principle work in our in our organization? How might we try that out? Interesting. Just out of interest, is there any UK company that you can think of or employer that does that? Because I'm sure they'll get lots of applications after this podcast if you if you can't think of anyone. Or are they mainly international? Well, I mean, in the UK, uh, off the top, I mean, there are some for sure. I mean, one interesting example we talk about in the book is Fenska Handelsbanken. They're a Swedish-based uh, financial services company. They're 
mainly a retail bank, although a retail commercial bank. I mean, they have some investment banking and asset management, but uh, the kind of traditional bank. Uh, they are about 12,000 people. Um, uh, but a lot of, the, a lot of um, uh, they have a big presence in the UK, big presence of about 200 branches. Um, and, and we have some examples and some anecdotes from people that basically came to Handelsbanken um, from other traditional banks. And, you know, they just found it uh, unbelievably kind of empowering because basically just a little bit like the Bertzor teams I mentioned earlier, the, the branches at Handelsbanken are, are basically their little startups. They have um, complete autonomy over credit decisions, pricing, staffing and other things within their cashman area. And so you can imagine, you know, going from a traditional bank like I don't know, Barclays or, uh, you know, one of those, <laughs> NatWest uh, and so on, Lloyd's, um, and where, you know, the branches are mainly um, uh, marketing and sales centers, you know, where they're just basi uh, basically uh, fulfilling orders from, you know, and, and you know, uh, adhering to standards set from by someone else to a branch where instead you're not just executing someone else's playbook, but you are in a way in full control of how to best serve your customer. And so it's an incredibly liberating experience for those who have made that, that transition and, you know, from a kind of traditional UK bank to, to Handelsbank and branches. So that's just one example. It must be so fascinating because of course, banks are probably, from what I know, they're probably one of the most traditional and hierarchical organizations that you can find. So that sounds absolutely fascinating. One thing I'm interested in is just the implications around consistency. So I'm I'm in two minds about this. So on the one hand, it sounds brilliant because you have, if you work in an organization like this, you will have freedom to craft your own job whilst being accountable for the results um, together with your team or with your mini startup environment. But then on the other hand, you're branch in Swindon might look completely different in terms of working practices to your branch in London. And quite a few of the people we work with, they say one of the big challenges they have is that it's it's potluck um, who your line manager is. So you might have a brilliant director who is very flexible, who supports you returning to work from share parental leave in a really good way. And then, but if you're unlucky, you have a manager who really doesn't care um, I know in your systems that you describe, they're not managers as such, but I'm just wondering, am I right to assume that there's less consistency with this system? And if yes, how do you make sure that everyone's needs are met? The way I would put it is that you have all the consistency you need, right? So, And you have all the consistency where it matters, as opposed to consistency for the sake of consistency, right? Which is the typical driving force in a, in a bureaucracy where, you know, consistency is good in and of itself. So a lot of these companies, and I'll, you know, mention two things, and a lot of these organizations, they're incredibly efficient. So they're decentralized, but incredibly efficient. So it's not like, you know, it's a trade-off. And the way you get efficiency is that, you know, there's a, a ton of shared interest in making sure that good ideas and good practices spread across the system. Let me just give you an example from Nucor, the steel maker. So they have these plants, about 80 plants. Each plant has a bunch of little teams working in them, focused on different aspects of the steel making process. This, these teams are paid on productivity, how much steel they churn out safely, and they make money as a team 
uh, they have like basically unlimited bonus. So the more steel they produce, the more bonus they get. So they're continually focused on improving productivity. Yeah, and, and so and they're responsible for their own, you know, productivity. But um, they also would be stupid uh, not to learn from other teams that are more productive than they are, and uh, or from pooling resources where it makes sense. So. For instance, you know, they have these uh, uh, visits between plants called best marking. It's, you know, uh, it's kind of a pun on, on benchmarking. But the, the idea is to understand what teams are doing that, you know, could be copied. You know, so they have a team and they have full transparency in terms of how these teams are performing. So you can tell whether a team is doing really well and or, you know, if a team has installed a production uh, a new production process that you're likely to install yourself and you, you want to understand from them how how it was done. So best practices kind of spread organically because everybody's trying to optimize their own performance. And, and when it comes to, you know, things like, so for different plants, you know, need to buy, I don't know, like electrodes, you know, because they they basically melt their scrap metal um, to, to turn it into steel with these giant electrical uh, charges, you know, uh, applied to to the scrap metal. So you have to buy electrodes that power the power the furnace, and it would be stupid for different parts of Nucor to kind of handle that separately. You know, everybody, you know, kind of going to the electric electrode supplier, um, you know, with their own kind of order. So so they've created like they've pooled purchasing right uh, power, or or you know, it, when it comes to big projects where they use different kinds of steel produced by different types of plants. They bring together experts from different plants working on different products, so that they craft a, a shared value proposition, right, for for the for the customer. So, so so they have ways, right, of getting con control and consistency that doesn't require you appointing a chief um, procurement officer or a chief, you know, account manager or or whatever. So again, you know, you got to separate the what from the how. Consistency is good. You still want that, you know, uh, but there are different ways these companies achieve it. So that's one thing. And in terms of um, the consistency when it comes to the relationship you might have with a with a boss or a supervisor and so on. And I, I, I would totally get the fact that, you know, bureaucracy in a way was and, and, you know, standards and procedures and so on are were developed to protect people from over personalized relationships between people. Right. And 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 nepotism. Uh, and and just like idiots, you know, like a boss who's a, a bit of a jerk. Like you you want to have rules to protect you from from those things. So I, you know, in, in a way, it's definitely bureaucracy, and those kinds of things are better than what what kind of preceded it. Um, but you know, again, these companies show you that there are ways to in, get to fair outcomes, and especially in relationships of of, of power. And, and and the way they do that is by you know framing, basically giving the teams a real say in in who is their boss right who is the leader you know it's not that these companies don't have any hierarchy they have fairly, fairly few uh, they have it's a flatter hierarchy they have far fewer levels but they do have people who are leaders but these leaders are in a way accountable to the lead you know uh so uh at, at nucor you know they have supervisors but supervisors you know in a way the team has a huge say in um you know in shape you know in determining who the supervisor is at higher you know these they uh, they have uh, these micro enterprises that are little product units and 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 functional units, and you know if if the unit is not well performing, the team can decide to get a new a new leader. So when you flip the accountability relationship, so that you know 
the the boss is accountable to um, to those who are who are kind of being led, then you you get rid of the unfairness, the potential unfairness, and and you know of having a or or the bad luck of having a a, a poor manager who's unwilling to give you flex time or or whatever, um, because that person is really res- has to be has to respond to the needs of the people working in the same unit, right? Hmm. Because they will, they might be sacked otherwise, basically. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean, and you know, if I wouldn't say that they serve at the pleasure of of the people that they are uh, are being uh, being led, but the people that are being led have a real say in determining who is their leader, right? And and so and and leadership is a product. So it's kind of hierarchy is built from the bottom up. You typically it's built top down. So you have big leaders appoint little leaders all the way down, right? In, in, in these companies, it's the other way around. So leaders emerge from the bottom up. It, you know, leadership is it, uh, it, in a way peer tested. The word, I, I actually have a real problem. We were debating with Gary whether we even use the word leader and leadership in the book because it's just so corrupted by bureaucratic uh, biases. Like the, when we talk about the leadership team, like most, most of us think, oh, it's the people at the top of the organization, right? And but if you define leadership as, you know, the capacity to bring about positive change in the organization, you know, maybe people at the top of the organization aren't necessarily the, the biggest leaders, you know, <laughs> maybe often they're, they're not leaders at all. And, 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 you know, and often they're not really a team, you know, they're kind of competing with each other. So, so we don't spend a ton of time in the book because we had to kind of make some cuts to, uh, fit some uh, contractual, fulfill some contractual obligations in terms of how long the book was. But, but the whole notion of leadership that applies in these companies is quite different than what you might find in, in, a, in, a, typical, in a typical company. And what's the workload look like? So you're, t- you're saying that actually the, these organizations are often much more efficient than others. And at the same time, I imagine there's a lot of coordination going on between the different self-managing teams. What what is your experience? Does it generally lead to a lot of workload for individuals? Yeah, I don't think it's more work in general. I think it's more meaningful work and it's more productive work, which is why you um, end up with maybe being able to achieve more with the same amount of effort. And you know the way the coordination happens is you know and it it varies the, between teams so and between organizations in some cases you just want to minimize the ne- level of coordination you need you know so by having these or you know organiza- you know these units be self as, as self contained as possible you kind of minimize the amount of interactions that that unit needs to have with other units so you kind of you know and 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 you and you basically take a bunch of bureaucratic BS to work out of, of the system, right? Um, in fact, you know, you might have read in, in, I think, in chapter three, we quantify the amount of time people spend based on, you know, surveys and other research that has been that has been published, the amount of time people spend just complying with bureaucratic strictures, and it's a significant chunk of time. It could, you know, be 16, 20% of someone's time. And in total, it's probably like 30%. And when you, we, we surveyed people, um, you know, about 10,000 readers of Harvard Business Review, yeah, people can, were coming up with like big numbers. So you're taking all that time that you're spending in bureaucratic compliance that you're reallocating it to something else. And then, you're, and, and then as I said, you know, coordination where it matters, 
then you know then you're targeted yes you know let's let's find out who's doing this better than we are or let's in the case of Burtzog, let's speak you know we had this issue with this you know these kinds of patients let's find you know let's look into the you know, kind of our information system i think it's called we link where you know they might find teams that have done it and they go and talk to the team but on balance, yes, they have to spend a little bit of time managing themselves and managing these interactions, but it's still way less time than they would need to be spend, you know, that they used to spend, you know, uh, being managed and, and complying with other people's management prerogatives. Mm, interesting. So just before we came on air, I mentioned briefly the way that flexible working requests work in the UK. So an individual will formally request to work flexibly, let's say to work four days instead of five, or perhaps to finish at 4.30 instead of six o'clock or whatever. Um, and those are often quite bureaucratic processes and often individual requests are rejected because managers or HR fear that they can't offer a consistent solution to everyone. How would flexible working requests look different potentially in an organization that is human-centered? Would they still exist? So I think they would be handled mostly at the team level. With maybe recourse in case someone isn't, you know, feels like they're not being treated fairly. But basically those things in a self-managing teams, you know, that's what part of what they do. You know, they, they manage staffing, right? And, 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 and talent allocation. I mean, I'll give you an example. It's not quite flexible. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not like work from home, but, but it's an interesting example from Michelin, you know, the tire maker. They were really keen to experiment with uh, giving people more autonomy in the factory. So these are blue collar workers where, you know, they run, they run the factory 24 hours, you know, seven. And so they have shifts. So you might be in a team of 40 people and there are three shifts you know, so you end up in different shifts. There's a night shift, there's an afternoon shift, there's a, there's a morning shift. And, and, and you know, uh, being allocated to different shifts used to be something that, you know, again, was done by policy and from HQ, you know, clear standards and procedures and so on. You know, all, all for, you know, maybe the, you know, well-intentioned, right? The, for the good reason. You don't want abuse. You don't want people to be treated poorly and unfairly and so on. But they found that system to be really rigid. And so some teams started experimenting. uh, And the whole process of Michelin, I can get into if you'd like, about how they started to make this journey. But it was really through these kinds of targeted experiments at the team level. They said, well, maybe we should be in charge of staffing as opposed to having our supervisor and HR do it. And so they decided, you know, there are some people who are kind of coming to the end of their career they're kind of older, you know, they're in the 50s and late 50s and so on. So night shifts for them are kind of tough. Let's let's not do that. Let's just, you know, make make adjustments and you know, some other ones will come. Or let's say someone has a personal commitment and they uh, want to go on vacation and we want to adjust uh, for that. Maybe they work more hours in one week and fewer hours the other week. And, so they ended up, and they did this with WhatsApp. I think they just basically were trying to, initially, uh, they did it incredibly um, simply. They started managing their own schedules. And, you know, uh, surprisingly to some, but not to me, you know, it ended up being a much better system because people felt like it was more flexible, it was more uh, reasonable, it was more tailored 
And it was ended up being more fair because, you know, the, the, the team can be self-regulating, right? So if, if someone is like not pulling their weight or, you know, getting too many benefits relative to others, the group will, you know, have something to say about that, right? And the issue will be addressed. And if, you know, if there's an issue the team can't address, you know, there, there are ways to escalate it. But, but, you know, it's kind of maybe a long answer to your question, Verena, but I would imagine for things like staffing and, you know, who works from home and what hours and so on, that those, the, the, the default should be, it's the team's responsibility to figure that out. We're going to give them the tools and the incentives and, 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 and the skills to kind of manage that on their own. And maybe they start with an experiment and grow more confident and bolder in how they do that. But the default should be the team is responsible for making these decisions. And, you know, there, there may be exceptions that need to be handled centrally or through administratively, but, but that shouldn't be the, the starting point. Hmm. Fascinating. And if someone hears this, their organization is not a humanocratic organization, but they are quite interested as a team leader or a de- department leader to implement some of those principles. Is this possible, first of all, to do it on the rogue? And also, if so, what would the first two or three practical steps be they should take? Yeah, you know, it's entirely possible. And uh, we have, as I mentioned, Michelin is a good example of, you know, getting started and starting, you know, with some kind of experiments and so on. We would encourage people very much to start small. I mean, there may be ways to get to to accelerate impact and, and get to some big steps quickly. But, you know, in a way, change needs to start with with the individual. Right. So there are things you do as especially if you're in a position of authority a formal authority you know things you don't may not even realize of you behaving like a bureaucrat like i you know kind of like not giving the team or individuals the benefit of the doubt or you know sandbagging your targets you know so to make your ear a little easier or undermining a, you know a colleague that is kind of in the same level as you because you're all competing for the next promotion so in a way bureaucracy as we we say in the book kind of makes nasty people of us, of us all and the first step we need to do is kind of a little bit of soul repair and just think about like how am i behaving like a bureaucrat so we have in the book a set of questions you you just ask yourself ask them daily reflections or weekly reflections about like your behavior and are you behaving like a bureaucrat or are you behaving as someone who's like helping to maximize the contribution of everyone working in, in your unit? The recommendation there is also to not only ask yourself those questions, but invite the team to help you keep yourself honest about that. So so start with yourself and, and try to detox yourself right from these bureaucratic mindsets and beliefs. The second thing you can do is start to share your power, right? So there are things that you can do within your perimeter where you can syndicate some of that work to other people. So when it comes to setting priorities for the next year, let's have a broader conversation about what you know the goals might be. Or when it comes to allocating work and tasks across the organization, you know, can we think about like can we recraft our own role descriptions to better make use of our of our collective interests and gifts and so on. Or when it comes to you know interdepartmental meetings, you know, maybe send a colleague of yours instead of going yourself and, and, you know, deputize that person to really make decisions on your, on, on the team's behalf. So, so there's a set of steps you can do within your perimeter um, to kind of share power and, 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 and involve other people in the task of managing. And then the third layer, I guess, would be 
start to hack, as we say, the, the management model. And by hacking, we don't mean, you know, people that, you know, take your kind of credit card information uh, and use it, but rather, you know, people like Lita Torvalds, you know, the found, founder of, of Linux, you know, the uh, one of the leading operating systems out there. It's an open source system and, and, and one that is developed collaboratively by, you know, hundreds of uh, or thousands of people around the world. And the idea is to develop, you know, just like Linux developed uh, as an operating system incrementally and collaboratively, do that to the organizational operating system, to the management system, to processes such as strategy, such as talent or development, such as, you know, priority setting, budgeting, and so resource allocation and so on. Kind of reimagine those in a very kind of experimental, iterative, and collaborative way. You know, so, you know, the we have some examples in the book of companies that have set out to do that, involving everyone or at least large parts of the company in, in figuring out, okay, how do we make our company more innovative and how do we apply these principles of humanocracy, markets, community, meritocracy, and so on, to, to reimagine these, these practices. Let, let me just give you a quick example to make this tangible, Verena, but let's say that, you know, your organization has a strategy process that is, you know, basically last year strategy plus or minus two or three percent. I think it's mostly the case and it's not particularly distinctive. Like it's not that different from other other companies strategies in your industry and so on. And you know that might be because you know the people that are making the strategy choices are the same people exposed to the same mental models, same experiences. Uh, you know they've been in the industry for a long time. They're just like stuck in their old ways and you want to bring openness. Like you want to you know get more ideas, more voices into into the conversation. Openness is one of the principles of humanocracy we talk about. So one kind of experiment you could run very simply is, as you go through the, uh, the strategy process for next year, have almost like a shadow strategy team. You know, maybe they're younger people in the organization. Maybe they're people that are at the fringes of the organization and have them go through the same exact process as the C-suite is going through and then compare notes and see what kinds of trends, ideas, opportunities, you know, emerge. And you'll be surprised. Well, I don't think you'll be very surprised, but you'll find <laughs> that, you know, there are a lot of really interesting ideas that are being seen by people further down in the organization at the periphery that are not even considered at the top. And, and so an experiment like that is super easy to do, right? And, and it could prove this, this hypothesis that, yeah, you know, we need to find when we craft direction and strategy, we should just be more open to ideas that come from everywhere, not just, you know, make this a cloistered kind of process, you know, led by, by you know, the C-suite at an offsite or whatever. So, so and there are lots and lots of ideas like that where you can start kind of small, but make a real point and show that there is an alternative and then kind of work your way to a more complicated uh, and more robust kind of alternative like the higher or Bertzorg and so on, right? But, but the process is more like the process of metamorphosis, you know, like take a caterpillar to, to butterfly, you know, that's an incredibly radical shift in function from the same, you know, little insect, but it's one that never feels traumatic and it's one that never feels, you know, a huge leap, right? It's incremental. So you get to a radically different model, but but it's a very evolutionary kind of path there. Mm, very true. And that's incredibly helpful and very practical. And I know that there are plenty of practical tips and steps to take within the book. We are sadly coming to the end of our time. Do you want to just share with our listeners where they can find out more about your work, perhaps the book, any websites, social media that might be useful to look at? 
The best resource for these ideas is humanocracy.com, our website. There, um, people can download the, the preface in chapter one, where you'll find the Bertzorg example. And then on that uh, website, you'll also find a link to a course called Hack My Org. It's about a four-hour course, and we built it basically to inspire and give people the tools to become management activists, management hackers in their organization, and kind of get to those examples like the one I mentioned about strategy. Four hours of video lectures with Gary, with me, lots of exercises, tools, and then a bonus content like interviews with some of the protagonists in the book. And you can go there directly at humanocracy.com forward slash course. And right now we are making it basically free if you buy the book, which we think is kind of a good deal because there's a lot of content packed in there. And we hope that people use that as a as a resource, you know, for, for getting for lighting the kind of the fire of management innovation in their organization. So I would say those humanocracy.com and the course very not are the biggest, you know, most useful sources. I occasionally blog at michelezzanini.com. People might check out that or at Michele Zanini on Twitter. Fantastic. That's been really insightful and thought-provoking. And I wish we had four hours instead of 45 minutes. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and expertise with us. And hopefully we'll continue the conversation in another format and another point. Great to talk to you, Verena. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. If this has been helpful to you in any way, please help me make a bigger impact by sharing it with three of your friends today. I'm sure you'll know someone who really needs to hear these things. So it'd be great if you could share it with them. And obviously, if you want to support, like with any podcast, you know, five stars reviews really help with the visibility. So thank you in advance for your help. And as I said at the beginning, if you are looking to join a network of like-minded, ambitious individuals who are parents across sectors, then head over to leadersplus.org.uk forward slash fellowship to find out more the next fellowship is starting in april and the application deadline is on 4th march there are some subsidized places available including hardship funds especially for those in financially challenged circumstances Um, until next time have a wonderful week